Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. My guest today is going to tell us the story of her experience with her sister and some of the things that she went through in that grief process. So guest, if you would introduce yourself and then just tell us a bit about your sister. My name is Deborah Kasdan. Um, and my book about my sister is Roll Back the World, a sister's memoir. Um, my sister, Rachel, uh, was three and a half years older than me. Um, she passed away um, some years ago, 2003. And that's when I began thinking about writing this book. Um, Rachel, uh, I guess the story starts uh, when she came home after a gap year, in uh, a high school gap year in Israel, working on a kibbutz. And uh, she had been a little bit troubled before, very creative woman, very uh, teenager, very bright, um, artistic, played the piano, the oboe, she um, drew, and above all, she wrote poetry. Um, she didn't, and she was very uh, well read. She loved Walt Whitman, philosophy, poetry, uh, but she also loved the outdoors. She loved working on the kibbutz. She did not want to go to college right away, she said. So she found a group going to Israel and worked on a kibbutz. And uh, she just loved it. It was active. She loved physical labor. She, um, you know, was so you know, she planted crops. She she harvested them. She did uh, childcare. She just did everything in the kibbutz. And uh, when she came home, it was so such such a so exciting to see her. She looked so different. She was bronzed, and her eyes were just vivid blue, and she uh, was muscular from all the work, and she was charismatic. She was very cosmopolitan, and all my friends gathered around her and her friends, and she, exotic looking, and just, she just seemed so healthy and happy, but she, did, she didn't want to be going to, to college now. She wanted to travel, and she said she was uh, she wanted to get out of St. Louis where we were living. She went to New York City to live with friends that she had met in Israel. Um, and she was on the Lower East Side. And she wanted, and then she kind of bounced around. She went to San Francisco. That's where she, everything was happening in San Francisco. This was the mid 60s. Uh, the, uh, she graduated high school in 61, a year in Israel. Yeah, so about 63. And uh, a lot happening there. Um, and one day she came uh, back from Israel and told me that she had been followed by two men all the way from New York to Seattle. Uh, I'm sorry, to San Francisco. And I could see the fear in her eyes. 
and I knew something was wrong. Now, there had been issues uh, that my parents were dealing with, and they kept saying, you know, Rachel needs help. And I was always saying, oh, come on, let her live her life. You know, she's, I, I mean, I admired her, uh, but I began to see that there was something to this, this concern. Um, her employer had called my parents when she was in San Francisco, San Francisco and told her to uh, get her back home. Uh, there was something wrong and um, they did. I was in college then. Uh, well, in my second, after my first year of college, I was away for the summer working at a, a summer camp. And that's when I found out that she had been institutionalized. Apparently uh, she was going off now with a, a friend in Montreal and the friend called up my parents and said, something's happening with Rachel. She's not, she's not acting right. And they took her off and there were emergency room visits. And finally, that summer of um, 1965, she was committed to the state hospital. And um, this was just traumatic for the family. I, you know, I found it hard to even remember learning about it. That's how traumatic it was. It was just, I just blocked it out. Um, I, in, in the process of doing the book, I recovered some of the some of this, but it was just traumatic because there were three other siblings. There's myself, my younger brother, two years younger than me, and my younger sister, seven years younger than me. And we weren't together when this happened. Um, my younger sister was a camper at the camp I was working at, and uh, my brother was off in a summer program in Seattle. So we didn't we didn't understand what was happening. We didn't understand why she was being committed or why her freedom was being taken away. And that was the beginning of um, the deinstitutionalization de years when people were being taken out of the hospitals. So what she so after was she diagnosed when she was entered, when she was entered into the hospital or admitted to the hospital? That's when she was diagnosed. Yeah, it was. They they di diagnosed her with schizophrenia. Um, you know, it's a collection of symptoms. The primary symptom is hearing voices. I'm not sure how how much of that applied to her. She certainly didn't talk about the voices she heard. You know, later on, I did hear her mumbling sometimes. So you know, th there seemed to be something going on. She would not admit to them. She was very proud and very suspicious. So um, she kept things to herself, but her th thought was definitely disorganized and she was not thinking rationally. She was very impulsive in her, pay in her behavior, taking off and going places. So all that wonderful creativity and, uh, dedication to writing and working with, was just all gone. Her life is just a big jumble. Um, when she got, when she went into the hospital, that was the beginning of, uh, I guess the first generation of uh, medications, psychotropic medications that were given in very heavy doses. So when I saw her at the end of that summer, she was just terribly sedated and angry. Um, so it was very hard. Um, my parents wanted to protect the other siblings. 
So we didn't get involved that much. Um, I went on to my second year of college. My brother started the first year. And, you know, we were encouraged to lead our own lives. Um, and I did, but I felt I didn't, I didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't know what, what to say. I, you know, I wrote to Rachel. I visited her when I was home, but it was hard to connect. She, she wasn't the same person anymore. Um, so then they, there were attempts, uh, to get her out of the hospital. The hospital was putting people into, um, into community, into the community, um, because the, the idea was, and is still now, not to isolate people with mental illness, but to integrate them into the community. However, the resources there were rather poor and she was um, dismissed, she was discharged into very rough areas of the city of St. Louis where uh, boarding houses, um, I, I don't think the people there had any training in dealing with this, people with the, with the illness and, um, she she uh, endured some tough times. She was assaulted. She was raped. She was, um, you know, always, you know, calling, come get me. She would end up on the street. So she would be readmitted. So there was that whole revolving door um, syndrome that uh, everybody knows, knows about. Even these days, it's still happening. Um, so uh, it was really hard on the siblings and my parents were pretty distraught they were uh did not feel she was uh that that uh doing that well in the hospital um and to me she just she looked terrible she just uh well there were times there were times though it was not all it was not there i mean there were ups and downs i ended up getting um married quite young uh partly as a as a result of this and um she came to my wedding but when i look at the pictures her face is one of the negative symptoms of schizophrenia is uh affect a, a, a inability to feel pleasure a lack of affect in other words there's no expression on her face and so there's just a, a like almost she's wearing a mask part of it was the medication part of it was the illness i'm not sure where one ended and the other began um, so that was the, the first years of, of the story. Great. So she was eventually released from the hospital and, and out on her own, or was she never really got to the point where she could be on her own? She was in and out. Um, my parents did not approve of this community program that the hospital was running and they actually filed a federal suit saying she had a right to treatment that got settled. There was a, um, a settlement, a consent decree, and the state had to make some changes. At that point, my brother decided the consent decree meant that she would be committed to the hospital forever. She would never get out. He thought that was my parents' intent. And I told him, no, no, they just want to improve conditions. And then ultimately she can get out but he he was very wary of this whole thing and offered to take her to um live with him in seattle okay so yeah. how, and that's that's a whole other section of the story yeah. 
how old was she at that time? So she's been in the hospital how many years by that time? She was in the hospital 15 years by that time. Oh, he was also very upset that she was uh, diabetic and they were giving her insulin. He wanted to have a more natural treatment. He was looking at alternative treatments. He thought it was because the food was so bad. Um, so she, 15 years. So um, that was like 19, so 15 years, she was 20. She was in her late thirties. Okay. Okay. So what, I mean, I know she eventually she passes away. So how old was she when that? Oh, happened? oh she was, she lived till 59. Okay. Which is about on target for um, serious mental, Ill, people with serious mental illness. It, it, I think the, the usual figure is that that lops 20 years off your life, largely because your medical needs are not well attended to. And, and she ended up, uh, I had seen her shortly before she died and she had a horrible, horrible cough, it was smoker's cough. She smoked incessantly. It was bronchitis and it, and overnight it turned into a pneumonia that, um, yeah. And that's what, and so, but that was, but there were, there was 15 years in St. Louis and then there were 15 years in the Pacific Northwest. And that's a whole different part of the story. Right. Um, so after she passed, I, you said here that you um, wanted to investigate what happened and why. So was there some kind of a suspicion that some uh, like foul play or something or? or oh, no, 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 no. In fact, they, they did a, a, the coroner talked to me, a medical examiner talked to me um, and they said there was no, uh, a, a man she was with reported it and okay. he had his own issues and, but they said he was, um, he was there was no suspicion of it. It was the medical, they found it. So, um, but when she died, that's when I felt I had to write her story. Um, it, ju it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, you know, I was gonna have to channel this story. She had been, um, she had been sidelined so long on the fringes of society and she had so much potential. And even when she was sick, she continued to write. And and she, I, you know, I wanted people to know, to know her name and know about her life. So that was a mission that I kind of took on that I had to tell the story. But in addition to the mission, I had I felt uh I had a song because I didn't really understand why this has gotten so bad with her. I mean, other people are treated and they have some level of recovery or stabilization. Why? But why did Rachel's uh, illness become so bad and, and chronic? Um, and so I did a lot of excavation to um, to to get at that. And you know, I came up with some theory. You know, I can't know for sure, but I came up with some ideas that made sense to me. I wrote about her earliest years. Um, I felt that um, we know that schizophrenia is, has a genetic component, right. but why did she get it and not me, you know? Um, well, she was three and a half years older. She was born during World War II in a very uh, stressful situation. She was living, <clears throat> uh, my mother and she, well, she was born in Cleveland, my mother, who had been abandoned her, herself as a child, married my father, who was, um, my, let me go back a minute. 
My mother was abandoned as a child and grew up in an orphanage because her mother had to work as a domestic and that's how she was able to take care of them. Her mother visited her, but she didn't have her father. Um, so she met my father when he was a graduate student in Chicago. They got married. Uh, his family did not approve of my mother because she came from a poor immigrant and, you know, so, but when he got drafted and she was pregnant, they went to live in Cleveland with the in-laws. They didn't get along. It was very stressful for my mother. Um, they loved Rachel, but then as soon as my father came back, they moved out and my and Rachel, who knew her grandfather as her father and was surrounded by cousins, all of a sudden was with this new man in her life, her father. And I think there was a lot of dynamics and uh, antagonism. My father had to start a new life. He had, uh, he had to start his career. He had his instant family. Rachel hadn't, no hadn't known him for two years. Um, so I think the stress, all of that stress in her earliest years um, uh, caught, had was part of a, what they call an epigenetic factor where, which is where the environment influences the expression of genetic code. Uh, so, you know, it, it can be dormant, but stress will pull it out. And so my, my thought process was that that she was vulnerable because of those three, three and a half years before I was born. So I write about that. I mean, I have to imagine what it was like. I mean, I know from very long interviews with my mother, what it was like for her, but I had to, you know, I, I had to kind of reconstruct that, those whole scenes. Um, so is your book written so, from her perspective or is it written from your perspective? As it's, you it's, written, it's, written, it's written from my perspective. One of the challenges of writing it was to give her a voice um, and to clarify who is it's about. Like people would say, are you writing about you or are you writing about your sister? Um, fact is, I'm writing about her, I'm writing about me and I'm writing about her family. So I kind of thought of it as a braided, a braided story with these three strands. Right. Um, you know, I guess in the foreground is her story, but I'm definitely telling it. And I'm also writing about how I dealt with it um, and how my family dealt with it right. and how that all came together. So when you published the book, um, well, who was your who was your intended audience? Who did you think would be most interested in in reading your yeah. book? Well, uh, uh, first of all, I think any family member who goes through something like this. Uh, mainly, I'm thinking about mental illness, but also people who have gone through other serious um, challenges with a, a sibling, um, and who have felt unable to help somebody they loved. So I think anybody can relate that. I I was thinking people in the um, mental health field who want to know what it was like, you know, kind of historic look um, and see what's still relevant today to have the kind of a detailed uh, family history around one person uh, mm -hmm. might be interested in that. Students of social work or psychology, um, but also any, but it's also, uh, you know, my story of um, people who like to, who want to read about, you know, overcoming 
this grief of overcoming this these types of challenges of how to how to manage a life when you have I think they call it and I just read ambiguous grief mm. you know you grieve over uh, a person that you kind of lost but you didn't didn't really lose yeah and how you how you balance that right so yeah grieving what she was like before which you remember well to what she was like you mm -hmm. know after she was on medications and so on and so forth so yeah. you you mentioned earlier that um as you were writing the book you kind of had to think back or remember back and bring up some memories that maybe weren't so fresh for you so what was that process like? And, and I, I mentioned that I have written my own autobiography. And I know for me to go back and think up things and remember things wasn't easy at, at times. So how did that really work for you? Um, you? Did you find it healing? Did you find it helpful? I mean, how, how was that for you? Well, I needed help to deal with the pain. So I myself um, went, was in therapy and that allowed the grief, you know, the grief to come out. You know, I'm at home. I, um, I just retired, and I've got wonderful grandchildren. I wanted to enjoy life. You know, um, my husband and I both retired, um, but I wanted to tell the story. So I needed help managing the grief. You know, having somebody who would listen, I could deal with it there, and then you know, go home and resume my my life. Um, so that was one part of it. Um, then the very act of writing itself, it's just funny the way it, it works. You just start with what you remember. And then as you write, more comes back. I'm sure you experienced that too. Yeah. Um, it, it almost pulls it out of you. Yeah. And I was, in, I was in writing workshops and that helped too. People would ask questions and Oh, that's a good question. And it, you know, it kind of percolated and I'd come up with an answer. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Now I know you also have a website. So what, what is the, you know, the structure of your website? What, what is it? Is oh, okay. Well, some people who read, um, read it early on said, uh, what did Rachel look like? I mean, I have some basic description of her. And for one reason or another, I didn't get any pictures in the book, just production technicalities. So I put pictures on the website. I have a little carousel of pictures on the website. And um, just why I wrote the book, I have some um, quotes from reviews and and then, you know, where you can buy it, um, links to where you can buy it. Um, I may put, I may do more with it later on, but right now that that's basically what it is. But I think people might enjoy the photos, yeah, particularly. Yeah, no, I I I understand. I definitely want to look them up for sure after hearing your story. So, yeah, just put a put a face to to the story. So, if you were you know if we had a listener who was listening who uh, either is you know family member has been given this diagnosis, schizophrenia is just such a a terrible disease. Um, and and knowing what you know now, what it was going to be like, um, you know, what would your recommendation be? What would you say? I mean, you mentioned maybe that kind of your family didn't didn't talk about it much or so on. I mean, would you wish there had been a change in that or how different? It was a different time. I know that it was a different time for one thing. So things obviously are different now um, with treatments and so on. But you know, what 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 would you offer there? Well, if you're a sibling and you're not the one in control, um, I'd say. Uh, try to stay connected um, in in a nice way. Just kind of insert yourself in the in the treatment discussions. Um, if you're an adult sibling, at least, uh, 
today we have the internet, so it's easy to find information. I didn't have that then. Um, so learn as much as you can. Uh, there are advocacy organizations like NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, with chapters in every area, major city and outlying other areas as well. And I would connect with them because they have lots of information and they have cor uh, courses and seminars where you can that's that are specifically designed to help families understand and balance self-care with care for, for your loved one, because that's such a tightrope to walk. Yeah. I would also not, I would also consider alternative approaches. Um, schizophrenia has always been a um, terrible disease, but there are alternative treatments, which I'm more hopeful of than I was back, back then uh, when it happened. Uh, there are hearing voices networks where people who have gone through schizophrenia uh, they call it psychosis uh, or alternate extremes, extreme states, um, will sit and listen and help a person ex uh, suffering now to get through it. Medication may or may not be involved, but it's not the centerpiece. Um, so uh, I've been learning a about that, and I think there's a lot of promise there. Um, if you think medication is not the only answer. Right. So that's Hearing Voices Network, NAMI. Um, I think those are two good, good sources of help. And you're gonna need help uh, dealing with that whole issue of how, what do I do? How much am I responsible for? And it, I think it's good to get some counseling for that yourself. I mean, I didn't, I rejected the idea when I was young um, but I, it, it, you know, I rejected it at a cost. I, I kept the whole, the whole issue, you know, down inside of me. And I suffered from depression myself, even though I had such support from my husband. Um, this, this was, this was inside of me. And later when I sought help, and then later when I wanted to write the book that I realized that that um, I needed to talk to somebody about it, what I was responsible for, what I could have done, what I, the choices I made, just thinking that all through, yeah. it would have been better had I done it earlier, is what I'm saying. So I just wrote myself a note, self-care. So kind of self-care being, uh, yeah. you should definitely make that a priority so that you are, you know, taking care of yourself first. And and I, I completely understand that the thought about, you know, when you kind of feel helpless, can't really help this this person because you know you can't fix it so there's that um so you also mentioned to me kind of like that we, I, I use the term survivor's guilt which is kind of weird but that the the term you know would how you feel a little bit guilty that you know you like you said why not me you know how, why did it happen to my sister and why not me and so on and so forth so um part of that probably was you were helped with you know that some of that self-care and the and the counseling mm -hmm. and to help you get over some of that yeah, counseling therapy helps helps with that. But just facing it, I mean, I rejected the idea at first, but I came to accept it. And in a way that uh, I, I couldn't keep distance, I just had to own it. And when I owned it, then I, it, I was relieved of it. It's kind of paradoxically, but yeah. 
No, I understand that. Um, so mental Ill health, mental illness is a stigmatized um, thing in our society. A lot of people don't want to talk about it, don't want to recognize it. Some people don't even recognize it as being a, a genuine, you know, illness or so on, because you, mm. don't, you don't see the broken arm. You don't see this. It's, it's you know, it may not may, may be more invisible. So do you find, um, you know, over the years, if you've talked about your sister where you've ever kind of experienced someone who, oh, we don't want to talk about that or it just makes them uncomfortable to talk about it and so on? Oh, yeah. I remember one uh, lunch I was at with a bunch of women and somebody said, oh, let's everybody tell, say something about yourself that nobody knows. So I said, well, I have a sister who's in a psychiatric hospital, mentally ill, schizophrenia. And then somebody said, oh, let's talk about happy things. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> and I was like, oh, why did I say that? Yeah. No, well, it was your, it was your norm. I mean, that's why. You yeah. Know, I think I, I, I really hope that our society will become more comfortable talking about mental health issues because I mean, so many people don't have treatment because they don't want to admit it. It's culturally, it can be a bit of a, uh, a stigma, but definitely, yeah, I, I, I want, was thinking they probably would have a story about that because I know I have had several myself from, from different family issues. So, yeah. Especially schizophrenia. For yeah. some reason, like bipolar is not as stigmatizing as schizophrenia. Go figure. I, I don't know why, you know, but. I, I would know. say if you think about it, what our media does to our, our mindset, right? So when you look at shows mm -hmm. where some of the character has schizophrenia, they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, like I remember an episode of ER many years ago where a, a patient came in and had schizophrenia and he ended up killing someone and stabbing someone. It was, you know, it was one of those where they just make it sound like you're just so incapable of, of, of interacting with people. That's kind of the, the, the picture that's put out there. Whereas yeah. I, I, that's just kind of, I, I've, I've done a lot of research into what, what our media and what, what movies and shows are training mm -hmm. us about certain topics, especially right. with illness. And that's definitely one of the ones where some of them just see scarier than others or whatever, or, or yeah. incurable or not treatable or whatever. And that, that definitely falls into that. It's funny. definitely falls into that category of, I think more of the more unknown white, but it is, it is treatable. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and some people function very well. Right. Uh, yeah. Yep. I have, I have a good friend and I, who, who yeah. does function well with medications and he's doing really well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, but then again, other people don't respond as well. So, mm -hmm. well, before we end, is there anything else you'd like to share for our listeners? Yeah. Um, I didn't go into the, the last half of the story. This is just too long about what, what happened to her in the uh, Pacific Northwest, but a wonderful, um, a uh, caseworker, a social worker, was able to get her into a uh, outpatient treat uh, treatment program, a community-based, not hospital-based, but a community-based outpatient treatment program. And they were able to get her supportive housing so that she was able to have a little cabin in the woods. Not a little, I mean, there were other houses, very small houses, like little houses like they have today. Um, a, a, a cluster of them in the woods near near the river, which was just perfect for Rachel because she loved nature. She could go for walks whenever she wanted. Uh, she had her freedom. And then the agency brings uh, her medicine to her. They come and do health checks uh, when she needed help shopping. They would, they would take care of that. 
um, take her to medical appointments, that type of thing. So she her she was supervised, but she had her freedom. Right. And I th and I think yeah, I think if these programs can do can do a lot for people if they're funded. If they're not funded, they don't have the staff. You know, they don't have the means to to do it well. So I I just hope that everybody will understand that people. Um, with the have this type of psychosis and chronic illness um, can live in the community even though we have mental health crisis homelessness crisis there's no need to push them back into hospitals um, you know they may need short very short stays if they have a bad episode but they can they can be in the community and when a community is welcoming to them and this community was there were some great stories that are in the book about how how she was accepted, um, that it makes all the difference. And um, I just hope people will support having uh, people live in their, live free, you know, freely in the, in their, their own, in their own environments, in their own communities um, and support the, that type of treatment. I think that goes to what we were just talking about with the stigma too. I think if, if enough, mm -hmm of that happens and we see that as our norm now in the community, right? It's more like, oh, of course, well, that's, you know, so-and-so over here and whatever, whatever. It's not, it's not abnormal. Whereas if it is seen as abnormal, that's where it's, that's scary because we don't talk about it. And so right. I mean, and you can sometimes identify people who are on medication, um, but there's no reason to be afraid of them. Right. And sometimes they seem to be on their own. Um, maybe it, their families were not able to help them take care of them or to include them in their lives, but communities can take the place of families or they can augment families. Yeah. And um, I think yeah. it's just a good way to, to look at that inclusive view. Yeah. Well, it's good for both the person who's you know, the patient, the person with this illness and, and with the community as a whole, it's kind of like integrating mm -hmm. kids with special needs into, you know, generic collaborative right? classrooms, right? It's a good right. for everybody. Right. Right. So that makes perfect sense. Well, I will get your um, the link to your website and to your book, um, which we'll post when your episode airs so that uh, listeners can find that, um, see Rachel's pictures on your website and how mm -hmm. that your book and so on. Um, but I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great uh, conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed hearing about your sister. Um, yeah. And hope I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you, Christine. This was a, a great interview. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief. To hear more about my personal story, please pick up a copy of my book, The Day I Became the Spider Killer, a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival, available in paperback, Kindle, and Audible via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online book retailers.